We began going through this book of John, and we spent the past year and a half <laughs> in it, and we're about to get ready to finish up in a couple of weeks. And why that's so important is because as we're coming to the end of John, all that came before is relevant to what we're going to be looking at today and the importance of this past year and a half that we've personally spent through going through John and seeing how amazing it is, the work of Christ and how John explains it in, in this gospel, starting back from when Jesus was baptized and then anointed by the Holy Spirit. So then he was driven into the wilderness. And after coming out of the wilderness, he began to call his disciples unto him. And he was teaching them what was to come. But also going on during this time, the Jews desired to kill Jesus. Those in leadership were trying to stump him or find ways to find fault in him. So finally, they come to the point where he has been betrayed by Judas. And then him being betrayed, he then is killed. And so we see at the climax of all of history, the death of Christ, that for us in this time we look back to the cross and those before we're looking forward. And so we see at the climax that Christ, he has died. And so we see the fallout is different with different people. For some, they're mourning and weeping. For others, they're rejoicing and happy that he's finally dead. And for some of even his disciples, they've already fled. And so after three days, he rose from the grave. And that brings us to where we're at last week, where he began with Mary. Mary then going to the disciples, Peter and John. And then the Lord coming and showing himself to her and her going back to the disciples and letting them know that she had seen the risen Lord. And so we get this whole entire story coming to this point of his resurrection, and now he's beginning to reveal himself to his disciples. And so help us of where are we going today, as we're going to be in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 29. We're going to see how Jesus, how he provides grace for our fears, generosity for our frailties, and gentleness for our failures. I'm going to repeat that again later on. But the purpose of him doing that is not just for us to be okay by ourselves. But this is so that we will be his witnesses upon the earth. And Ephesians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, helps us show us this, that we have been saved by grace. We are God's workmanship to do these good works that he has prepared before him. And so let us begin in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 29. And it'll be up on the screen. So John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his sides, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came, so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, 
and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage. And honestly, Lord, we could spend a lifetime here with just so much depth, Lord. With each verse, it just compounds upon it. And so we ask for your strength. We ask for your spirit to bring clarity where we need clarity, Lord. That you may convict us, that you may transform our hearts according to your word. Help us to set aside our feelings. Help us to set aside what we believe to be true, but rather submit to the truth. Help us, Lord, to submit all things unto you. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for the example that you set here, how you care for your people. And thank you so much, Lord, that that grace and mercy has been extended to us, that we who were far off, Gentiles, you have brought near to be your own. And so we worship you and praise you for that today. Lord, just thank you for your word. And I pray that this time may be pleasing to you. And I pray that each and every single one of us may leave away today with a desire, a passion to serve you and love you and do your will, O Lord. We thank you so much, Lord Jesus, for all that you do, all that you are doing, and all that is to come. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So let's jump back into verse 19. So it begins off by saying, on, that, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. And so this passage picks up from where we were at last week. As Tim was preaching through the day of Jesus' resurrection, we now come to the evening. And as I spoke about before, Mary had went first, then the disciples came after, and then she went back to them, letting them know that the Lord had been risen. And so now they're gathered together in this room on that day. So let's continue on. John continues on by saying, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So as we look at this of the doors being locked, there's two things that really stood out as I was going through this. So the first one that we recognize is that Jesus enters in through locked doors. And the speculation on this is rampant um, because it's either thinking through, did he walk through the walls? Did he teleport through the walls? Did he create a, a portal and go through it? It doesn't really tell us how he did it, but the point of all of this is that his resurrection body was different. And at the very basis, he being God could do all things. And so we don't know how he got through the walls and got into the room, but we know that he did, whether it was any of those kinds of means. And the second reason John points out for the doors being locked is because he says that out of fear for the Jews, they have the doors locked. And so we have recognized after Jesus was crucified, and even when he was taken, a lot of them had fled. And so they probably were fearful that they were going to become next, that they had 
given up all things to follow after Christ, and now he's dead. And they had forgotten many of the promises that he had told them from before, and so they find themselves in this state of fear. And we see this also in Peter when he denied Jesus when he was amongst those who hated Christ, who were challenging him of his association. And we see Peter even denying him. And so we see that the disciples had did this collectively, that they had hid away, locked the doors, and fear of the Jews and what was to come. And also, they did not believe the testimony of Mary, because as the scriptures tell us, that she went to them telling them that they had seen the Lord. And we still see that they were still fearful, even though she came to them, letting them know what the Lord had did. It, had did. And so, in the midst of this fear, Jesus comes and he does something. He stands among them and he says, peace be with you. This is an amazing thing as we look at what Jesus did. As all the stuff I just listed, how they fled, how they rejected him, how they went their own way, he could have came in with a strong hand and said, you faithless cowards. Did you not remember all the stuff I said? Did you not get it? Did you not listen? But he doesn't. He was gracious to them in their time of fear. He showed them mercy and grace. He cared for them knowing their frailty. And it's a beautiful thing for us to see our Lord when we're in the midst of our own fears, of how he cares for those. He cares for us. And so we see Jesus having every right, and honestly, most of us probably would have said something along those lines, of what were you thinking, or how did you reject me, or why did you do run away like a coward? But we see in our Savior that in their fears, that he shows them grace. And as I was thinking about this, of just practically applying this to our lives, speaking to parents and then in a general sense in relationships, of often of thinking about even with my daughter, how whenever she does something wrong, how the, the, there's a sense or a desire sometimes to say, all right, I just need to correct her. I need to stamp that out. She needs to be corrected. But the question I have for parents is, do they know, do your children know mercy? Do they know grace in the midst of their fears when they're making these mistakes? And the same thing as we think about with relationships. When we know somebody's fearful or know somebody's making a mistake, do we show them grace or do we only desire to correct and stamp out the fear? Let us see with Jesus that, yes, correction has its time, but also to be able to be gracious to those who are fearful and to care for them and not only try to stamp out their fears and correct them. And so now this phrase that Jesus uses where he says, peace be with you. So this is a common greeting that is in Jewish, and they still use it even sometimes to this day. But Jesus' timing adds weight to it. And so there's going to be a passage up on the screen in John 16, verses 32 through 33. So John 16, verses 32 through 33. So in John, a lot of Jesus is speaking about um, the Holy Spirit coming, him leaving, and in this particular passage, which gives allusions to what's going on right here. So it says in John chapter 16, starting in verse 32, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So we get a sense from what Jesus is saying there, 
telling them this was going to happen. They've come to a point where it has happened. And he's telling them that peace be with you because I am with you. The reason why they could have peace, the reason that they could be assured is because Christ is with them. And so we see that Christ in this time chooses to strengthen them in their time of weakness, in the midst of their fears, as they're afraid of what's going to happen to them, afraid that they may have wasted their time. He reminds them, peace be with you because I am with you. And so as we move on to verse 20, we're going to see how does this help us to find that same peace in Christ that we see here with the disciples. So in verse 20, he says, When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his sides. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus starts off by showing them his hands and his side, showing that he is a real person. And also in the account of Luke chapter 24, we see that he ate fish. So we see that he does have a real body and he's not a ghost. I encourage you to listen back a couple weeks where Tim was talking about some of the wrong beliefs on the resurrection to get a little bit more details on some of the ways that people have gone astray by calling him a ghost and all kinds of other things. But John makes, it, makes a point to show us that this was a real body, that he is showing the proofs in his hands. And also it's showing them that he's not just some random person. They know that he was crucified in that way. They were able to give a, an account for that. And so as we see, he shows them who he is. And so as I said before, how can we find peace in this? How do the details of this particular verse help us to find this same peace? So there's three points that I want to point out in this, in this particular verse. So the first one is Jesus did not remove them from their situation. Jesus did not belittle them in their fear. And Jesus tells them to look upon his resurrected body. So starting off with that first one. So often when we're in difficult situations, the desire is always, remove me from this, I need a better situation. It's always better on the other side. But we see Jesus did not do that in the situation. Even as we reference back from John 16, that you will have tribulation in this world, that it's going to be difficult. He didn't remove them. And then we see him moving on into that he didn't belittle them, that in that not removing him, he did not belittle them in their fears. He comforted them, he strengthened them, that they may find their joy in him despite how everything else was going on, despite the threat of persecution that they were facing. And then the third one, he tells them to look upon his resurrected body. So for us, there's two ways that I see this working out in our lives. A great one is in our corporate time of communion. That time of communion of reflecting upon the death of Christ, of meditating on it, doing it corporately as a body, of taking time to remember that Jesus has died and raised. And then the second one is in preaching the gospel to ourselves. Often we think of the gospel as something as an entry, entry test into the faith, but rather we are to live by the gospel. And especially preaching it to ourselves. In our times of fear, when we're doubting the Lord, when we're afraid, that we remind ourselves of what Jesus has done. We remind ourselves of the gospel. We remind ourselves of how beautiful and how amazing the work of Christ is. That we do it corporately, coming together as a community and taking of communion, and there's more ways. And that we preach the gospel to ourselves. So we see in these things that in the midst of our fears, we're able to find peace and rejoice in his sacrifice. So let us look at that as an example from the disciples that Jesus called them to look at what, at his body. And in that, they found their peace 
and their joy. And so let's continue now to verse 21. So verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So the very first thing to point out is the placement of that peace. So peace comes before the sending. And that's important for us, that peace with God must precede before us doing the works for the Lord. We can't do it in reverse where we're trying to work and earn that peace, but out of peace and out of union with Christ, we're able to be sent and to be able to serve. And that's important because when we mix those things up, it becomes difficult. It becomes frustrating. It becomes, why am I still so frustrated? Why am I still so fearful? Because we're trying to do it in reverse and we're trying to earn that peace. But rather, Jesus uh, tells them that it's peace first before he sends them out. And this sending, as I referred back to going through John over and over again, I'm hopeful that you remember this, that often Jesus talked about being sent from the Father. He often talked about the nature of their relationship. He often talked about what he was doing on this earth as being sent by the Father. And so in similar way, though it's not exactly, we are called to be sent by Christ to speak his words to do his will, and to perform his works. And we see that similar with how Christ was sent by God the Father. And another thing that came during his commission was after his baptism, which you can write this down and to turn to to, um, for later, which is Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through chapter 4, verse 1. And in that account from Matthew, we get uh, more details about Jesus' baptism. And after he was baptized and he came out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And so we see that he was anointed by the Spirit before going forth into his ministry. And so that's going to be important for us as we move on into verse 22. So let's look at verse 22. So in verse 22 it says, And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So, before we begin in verses 22 and in 23, there's a lot of differing opinions on what this means, and also in verse 23, and I'll put that forth. I'll explain to you why I come down the position that I do, that I believe this is new creation language. So the first reason why I come to that conclusion is in this word of breathe. And so in the Greek, this word is only used here in the New Testament, only this very once, this very time. But in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it's used a couple different times, but specifically in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, and Ezekiel chapter 37. So I encourage you to go back and look at Ezekiel 37, but I'm quickly just going to read Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, so I can show you why I come to that conclusion of this being about new creation. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So, as many of us know in that creation account, when man was formed out of the dust, that God breathed a spirit to him, giving him life. And we see this exact same language used here by Christ of breathing into them and calling them to receive the Holy Spirit. And so new creation broke forth with Christ in his death and resurrection. 
him being the first fruit. And when you read in 1 Corinthians 15, he expounds upon the resurrection beautifully, speaking of Christ as the first fruit. And then, in this moment here of man coming into that, of Jesus breathing the Holy Spirit upon them, and the reason why they need the Spirit of God and also why we need the Spirit of God is because without the Spirit of God, our works are for nothing. They must be empowered by the Spirit of God to be able to understand what Jesus is saying, to be able to do his will, to perform his works, to speak his words. And we're going to see why this is important as he goes on into verse 23. So in verse 23, he says, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So, another one of those that is quite debated. And like I said before, of the Holy Spirit being important for what he's calling them to do. So, what's going on here is Jesus is speaking to the apostles. He's speaking to the disciples. And he's giving them this commission. And for us, it may seem weird to be able to forgive and to withhold forgiveness of sins, especially in a time like this when there's so many different opinions, so many people call this sin, that sin. But as we reflect on what's going on in this time, that the disciples being the first ones in their coming to Christ, as he gives them authority to preach this message, there is no Bible. There is no writing down of what they're going to be able to proclaim. And so what I understand this to be is that Jesus is giving the authority to the apostles, and by that, us going according to the apostles' teaching have that same power. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So as we think of this question of forgiveness of sins, the obvious question that we ask is, can't God only forgive sins? And you are exactly right when you come to that conclusion. And so when we think about the forgiveness of sins and what does that mean, or who is able to, or why they're able to, so the first thing that we think about is authority. Who has the power and authority to forgive sins? The second thing that we think about is what is the standard? On what standard is sins either forgiven or that forgiveness is withheld? And then the last one is the means. How are you able to receive this forgiveness? So I want us to turn to two passages in Acts that are going to help to explain this. I know it may seem confusing, but after coming through Acts, I hope you're able to see what... Um, what John is getting out here. So we're going to have two passages. The first one is from Paul. It's going to be Acts chapter 13, verses 36 through 39. So it starts off first with Paul. So he says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So that's the first one of Paul speaking. So we're going to go now on to now Peter having time to proclaim. So just giving a little bit of context to Peter because we're going to spend some time in this one. So Peter just had the vision that he fell asleep, and the Lord, there was a sheet that came down, and on the sheet was different kinds of animals. And he tells him to kill and eat. But Peter refuses to because he says, I, never, I do, will not eat anything uncommon. But God tells him to not call uncommon what he, what he has blessed. And so we see in that point of P, 
Peter rejecting this. And it says that this happened three times. Directly right after this, three men come to him from Cornelius saying that they were sent because Cornelius had a vision that he was to come to Peter. So three men come after Peter has had this vision for three times. And so in the midst of Peter is trying to figure out what's going on. And so he goes with them because of, it was directly after this vision. And so Cornelius had brought a bunch of people together because they were expecting Peter to get there. And when he got there, this is what he proclaimed to them. So he says, As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commands us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So if you could go back to verse 42. So we see in verse 42, we establish authority. So the authority is in Christ, that he's been appointed by God to judge the living and dead. So he is the arbiter of what is true. He is the arbiter to say if you're forgiven or not forgiven. Verse 43 of the standard, what standard are we measured by? That everyone who believes in him. So the standard is faith and trust in Christ. And what is the means? It's through his name. And so this is what Peter proclaimed to them. They had no Bible. The scriptures were not written down, but he proclaimed to them authoritatively because by the Spirit he was able to speak these words. And so the forgiveness of sins that he's able to do is only based on the forgiveness in Christ. They were preaching the gospel. This is what he's getting at. He wasn't able to do it arbitrarily to say, well, I don't like you today, so your sins are not forgiven. He didn't, it wasn't that kind of authority. But the authority was solely based in the one who sent him. And this is important because it's the same way that Jesus spoke when he came sent by the Father. They said his will, his food, his drink was to do the will of the one who sent him. He even says his authority comes from the Father. And so we see the same example placed upon the apostles as they went forth preaching the gospel. So then you ask, what does this mean for us? As I said before, it started with the apostles and therefore for us the same thing. As John, 1 John chapter 1 verse 8 tells us that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful to forgive. And so we can say to one another, if you confess and put your faith and trust in Christ, then your sins are forgiven. But if you reject Christ, if you deny him, then your sins are not forgiven and you will die in your sins. And so the authority is not for us to do as we please, but it is solely based off of trust and faith in Christ, and we proclaim that. And we see that, we get that authority of seeing the, disciple, the disciples put this in the scriptures, and we echo those same things. 
And so it's not for us to do as we please, but rather preaching and teaching the gospel of Christ, which in Luke 24 even gets at this even more, of speaking of proclaiming the repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Christ. And so that's what it means for us to be able to forgive and withheld. It's not in our own authority. It's not in our own standard. It's not in our own means, but it is solely based in Christ. And that is the only authority, the only standard, and that is the only means that we have for any of us to be forgiven. And that's where we rest. And that's where it begins and ends with Christ and any forgiveness of sins. And so, as we see, our risen Lord is generous to our frailties, that he provides them with the Spirit of God, that they may do this work. But sadly, one of the 11, he did not get to attend, and we're going to get to see how Jesus interacts with him next. So continue on into verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So we're going to continue on and do 25. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So as many of us know Thomas, we know him as Doubting Thomas. And in the same passage, Tim got to preach a couple years back in Easter, and he got to elaborate on a lot more of that. And this is why a lot of people look at Thomas as the doubting one. But today, I want us to not harp on Thomas, but also to see how Thomas, how there's a little bit of Thomas in each of us. And I love how even the disciples, knowing their brother, how he wasn't there, how they went to him and told him what they heard preach. I expect you guys to do the same for those who are not here to tell them what they miss in the sermon. But all joking aside, all joking aside it, it's interesting to see how they care for their brother, that they made sure that how excited they were to see the resurrected Lord, to hear what he had proclaimed to them, that they went and ran and told him, that they told him about what was going on. But as we see with Thomas, of why he's known as Doubting Thomas, is because his denial is strong, and he demanded physical, physical evidence that he was not going to believe unless he had this physical evidence. And like I said, I don't want to harp on Thomas, but I want us to also think about how do we display these same characteristics as Thomas is showing here. And so the question I have is, when is the last time you demanded for God to show you a sign or you wouldn't believe? And I know, though, this is speaking specifically of denying the resurrection. There's that tendency in of us of we know what God has called us to. We know in his word we're supposed to do. But we have this doubt and we say, unless you come down from heaven and show me this, I'm not doing it. And another example of this, too, is when, as you see with the disciples going to Thomas and them telling him, and he should trust them. They've spent time together. They've seen the Lord together. He should trust their word. But he denies them. He tells them he will not believe. And we can do that same time. When is the last time someone has came to you and showed you something clearly in the scriptures? And you said, well, that's, that's your opinion. And unless God comes down or tells me personally, I can't believe that. Often we allow our feelings. We allow our opinions to be the final judge. We say, unless I experience it, or it's something that I have to come to believe, then it can't be true. But 
The same thing for Thomas and same thing for us. When in these times, when we have doubts, when we're struggling to believe, when we're not wanting to hear the testimony of a brother or a sister, there's a very simple question that's been helpful for me. I hope it's helpful for you. It's a question of, is it true? And allowing that to be the final judge. Not, do I feel like it's true? Does it make me feel good? Do I like the way it sounds? Did it come across right? But we align it with, is it true? And this principle, it may seem simple of, oh, is it true? It doesn't really matter. We can believe what we want to believe. And I was listening to this podcast this week, and it's a podcast about urban apologetics, and it's a, it's a, it's a great podcast. And they have this conference called Courageous Conversations. And the point of it is to get differing viewpoints to be able to talk through things. Um, gently is the goal, but it doesn't always go, go that way. But they had this conversation about exclusivity and inclusivity of Christ. And so I was listening to them. There was, they would hear the, um, the one guy who's, who believed that Jesus is inclusive. He would say, because this is what I've experienced, I can't tell somebody else that they are wrong in their belief. So he was emphasizing, he kept coming to this point of, this is what I've experienced. How can I tell the Muslim? Or how can I tell anybody from any other faith that they're wrong in their belief? And I love the guy who kept, ta- uh, kept replying to him, of asking him more and more questions, getting him to come to that conclusion. And he finally got to a point and said, I know you're trying to make me make an exclusive claim, but I'm not going to. And you wonder, why is that important in this point? Because if we allow truth we're not even allowed the truth itself to be relative. If it's just your opinion or my opinion, I can believe it or not believe it because it's true for you, it's true for you, it's true for me, it's true for me. Then we have no basis to stand upon. Everything is relative and it does not matter. But Jesus' resurrection is true. And we must respond to that truth. And it doesn't become true just because we believe it. But rather we are submitting to the truth. We don't make it true. And this is the beautiful thing that we're going to see with Thomas as we continue on in verse 26. So, eight days later, sorry, jumping back into John chapter 20, verse 26. So, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. So, we see it moving ahead again with the weeks, and we see Jesus coming again, most likely at that same exact time. The doors are locked again. What's also interesting is here that John does not say it's for fear of the Jews. So I believe that the, they were greatly encouraged and strengthened by Christ in that time before, that they were not fearful of the Jews, but for whatever reason, they were still gathered together at this time. And so that Jesus comes to Thomas in the same exact way that he came to those before. And he says to him that same exact, that same exact phrase, Peace be with you. And then he continues on by telling Thomas in verse 27, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So again, we see Jesus with the opportunity to rebuke and humiliate his disciple and doesn't. And kind of in a weird way, he, he actually listens to Thomas. He came to Thomas, even though he wasn't there physically, he knew what Thomas had said. He listened to Thomas' request. And it's a beautiful thing to know that our Lord knows us. He knows exactly what we need. 
He knows how to reach us. He knows how to overcome our doubts. And it's beautiful that he comes to Thomas in this way. And I know the question, it leads into this question. And I know I've had this question before. It's like, but what about me? Lord, why don't you appear to me physically like that? Why don't you come and show your hands and show your side? And there can be that struggle within our hearts in times of doubt of, Lord, why don't you just show yourself? Why don't you give me this sign? You know I'm struggling. You know I'm doubting. If you just came, then everything would be all right. And honestly, I don't know exactly why the Lord chooses to come to Thomas and not others. Or in other instances we'll see in the New Testament, at the Gospels, as move forward as we see him coming to others. But as we finish off in verse 29, I promise and I know we can find hope in what Christ is proclaiming, that even though we don't see him, that there is hope that there is blessing in even not being able to see. So let's continue and see what happens now with Thomas in verse 28. So in verse 28, it says, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. It's such a simple statement, but it's so amazing to watch how the one who is known as doubting Thomas has now been the worshiper. So he moves from doubting in him. He, rem- he moves from that to worshiping him, making the clear statement that we have of Jesus' Jesus's deity. Where he calls him clearly, my Lord and my God. And this is a beautiful thing, and this is something that for those who are in Christ have experienced this, where we denied him, where we rejected him, and it looked different for each one of us. For some of us, we were staunch atheists. For some of us, we grew up in the church. Some of us, we didn't want anything to do with the faith. But it's such a beautiful thing to see those who were doubters. To worship him and say, my Lord and my God. It's a beautiful thing to see this with Thomas. And just in case, as many people say, well, Jesus didn't call himself God. Let's see, how does he respond to him in this next verse? So in verse 29, it says, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So in here, Jesus does not rebuke him, but he affirms that he has believed rightly. But he asks him, because you have believed because you have seen me. And this is something that we may pass over. But it doesn't say that that Thomas touched him. It says on the sight. So it's by seeing him, hearing his word, All of his demands crumbled. It crumbled before the Savior because he thought it was, this is how it's going to be. He has to show me in this way. I have to touch him. I have to feel. But that is dismissed and he falls and worships. My Lord and my God. And then Jesus continues on by saying, blessed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So as I said from before, of that question of, well, what about us? And Jesus tells us that it's a blessing to not see and yet believe. And at first I read that, I'm like, no, it's probably better to see you, Jesus. It's probably better to see you, talk to you, have this conversation with you. It's probably a lot better, a lot easier to just understand exactly what's going on. And that's where my mind went to, but the Lord reminded me of John chapter 16, verses 1 through 7, which will be up on the screen. So... 
Jesus here says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I do not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So why I brought up this passage is they have a similar situation where Jesus is there with them physically and present. But he says it's better for them to go, for him to go. And we see the disciples, their hearts were filled with sorrows, probably because of the impending persecution, and most importantly, that their Lord was leaving. But Jesus says to them, he says he tells them the truth that it is better for them. And so in that same way for us today, when we struggle with not physically seeing him, seeing Jesus, we're having our doubts. We say, why don't you just come physically, bodily before me? And he says, it is blessed that you believe and yet not see. And the connection there for both of those is, though we don't understand it, though we think it should be the other way, but if Jesus is saying, trust me, I'm telling you the truth, it's better for you, let us trust him. Even though we can't answer all the questions of why, we may not understand it fully, but we know that our Lord has said it is a blessing for us to go through it in this particular way. And so that being enough, that being the basis. And so when we're struggling with not seeing him, when we're having our doubts and we're asking for a sign, let us remember this, that Jesus says it is actually a blessing that you do not see and yet believe. And that was one of the things we read as we were opening up in prayer this morning from 1 Peter as he gets at this same exact topic. And it's an amazing thing that we believe in Christ, though we do not see him, yet we still love him. And why that's so beautiful is because we know the Spirit of God is the only reason why we call him Lord. It's the Spirit of God that we can love him, though we don't see him. This is, why the, this is a reason why the Holy Spirit is so important, because we do not have the physicalness of Christ, but yet we still believe him, we still worship him, we still praise him, we still follow him, and that is only by the Spirit of God. And so let us trust Jesus when he says that that's the better way for us, is to not see him, yet believe. And so as we come to a conclusion, I'm see if you guys may have picked up on this. There's been a running theme throughout this particular passage. That each time Jesus is identifying a problem, the solution always resorts back to them finding their hope, their peace, their trust in Christ. When they're having their fears, he tells them to look upon them. When I bet they're doubting of how they're going to be sent and knowing that they have frailties, that they have weaknesses, he supplies the grace that they need by sending the Holy Spirit. And then during the time of doubts, Let's look upon Jesus. Look upon him. And that's the same thing for us today. 
that in the midst of all these things that we go through, the things that are self-inflicted, that inflict on us from others, that at the, at the end of it, we come and we put our trust, our faith, we look unto Jesus, find our joy, our peace, so that we're not overwhelmed and overcome by our situations or our frailties. And it's a beautiful thing for us to recognize that, that in our resurrected Christ, we find hope. And so, as we conclude this, as we've seen how Jesus cares for his people, how he loves them, how he cares for all their issues and problems and the solution being in him, it's not just for them to end off there, but it's for him to send them out, that they may be witnesses, and thank God that they did not stay, because the Lord used them so that we may believe also, is the testimony of the apostles as written down in scripture, how we have come to faith, that we can read it in the scriptures. And so, though we are not the apostles, I'll state that again, we are not the apostles, but in similar fashion, the Lord desires to use us for his glory, to be his witnesses upon this earth, to be able to be healed, to be restored by him, and then be ministers of reconciliation in the world. And so I want to encourage you with that today, that as you reflect on and look at how Christ cared for his disciples, how he loved them, that he also sent them on a commission to preach the gospel, that the forgiveness of sins may be found in Christ, and we are called to do the same. Let us pray. Lord, what a sweet thing it is to, to get to see you, Lord, in your word. Just bring so much comfort just knowing who you are. So in the midst of our fears, in the midst of our frailties, in the midst of our doubts, we know in you there is grace and generosity and gentleness to correct us and guide us and to love us. We thank you so much that you have brought peace. And that that peace is only through the forgiveness of sin, which is through your name, Lord Jesus. Help us not to shrink back from that. Help us to not give people alternative ways, leading them astray. But that hope, that peace, that joy can only be found in you. Lord, help us to deny any other way that is brought forth. But when we look upon you, your word being true, how you care for those who follow you, Lord. We worship you and we praise you. And we echo with our brother Thomas, our Lord and our God. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.